Well, I'd like for us to turn tonight to the book of First Peter, chapter 2. And we'll start here with a little bit longer of a section tonight than I normally would read, but I think you'll see why I read this much uh, as we go along. Uh, we'll start in First Peter 2, verse 9, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 9. So, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation." Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable or in the margin perverse can even be translated. For this finds favor or grace if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls." In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God." For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, 
and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Amen. Well, I had us read a rather long uh, section of Scripture here tonight because I want, to, I want us to do more of a bird's eye view of this section of First Peter. We won't be spending a lot of time on the details here, but we'll focus instead on the main question that Peter deals with in this portion, which is this. The main question is, how should Christians live in the midst of a fallen world? That's the main issue, the main question that he's dealing with here in this portion that we read. How should Christians live in the midst of a fallen world? How should Christians live in the midst of a world that is opposed to them and is often antagonistic towards them? What qualities, or in this case, what quality should characterize our life and walk before a watching world? Those are the kinds of questions that we'll be considering tonight as we look at this section of Scripture. But before we can talk about how a Christian is supposed to live, we need to first appreciate what it means to be a Christian in the first place. Identity comes before behavior. B comes before do. So in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2, Peter starts here by giving us several descriptions of what it simply means to be a Christian. All right? Verses 9 through 11. He starts, he says, But you are a chosen race. Every Christian has been individually chosen by God to be part of a chosen race of people that have been called out from the mass of humanity fallen in Adam. He says a royal priesthood. Every Christian is a priest unto God with direct access to God. Right? We don't have to go through an intermediary anymore. We have direct access to God, unless that intermediary is Christ. But we have direct access to God Himself in order to offer gifts, prayers, sacrifices of worship, and praise directly unto Him. We are a holy nation. The people of God are holy, separated out from the world separated unto God as His servants. We are a people for God's own possession. We belong to Him. He chose us and purchased us, not simply to save us from our sins, but so that we would actually belong to Him as His special possession. Right? You have been bought with a price. You belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God, Paul says. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every Christian is a herald. Every Christian is a proclaimer. Every Christian is a proclaimer who lives to speak of the excellencies of the one who saved them. And then next in verse 10, Peter says that Christians are those who make up the people of God because of God's mercy toward them. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. (laughs) You had not received mercy, 
But now you have received mercy. And because you've now received mercy in Christ, you are the people of God. And then in verse 11, Peter says that Christians are beloved. Beloved, I urge you. Christians are loved by one another, of course, but more importantly, loved by God Himself. Romans 5, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Beloved is a title that every Christian wears. His banner over me is love. Beloved of the Lord. And then finally, Peter says that Christians are aliens and strangers. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. We don't belong to this world any longer. We don't fit any longer. Paul says in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we truly belong. That's our home. Right now we are away from home. We're going to our home someday, one day. Jesus said that we are not of this world even as He is not of this world. John 17. They are not of this world even as I am not of this world. You see, we are aliens and strangers. We're not pretending to be aliens and strangers. We really are. Really are. We really don't belong here. We really are away from home. It's what we really are by virtue of our new birth and our identity with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not of the world even as He is not of the world. Now, all of these things then are simply statements of fact about the Christian's identity. These are descriptions of what each and every Christian is by virtue of God's work in their life. Now, with that foundation in place then, we can begin to answer this question of living the Christian life. And given these realities, given that these realities are true of us as Christians, the question then is, how should we live in the midst of this fallen world? Given that these things are true in verses 9 through 11, how then should we live in this fallen world that we yet find ourselves in? And in verse 11, Peter starts by putting his answer in the negative. He starts with a negative statement first. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. How are we to live in this fallen world? First of all, we are to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And of course, this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? For him to exhort us in this way. If we no longer belong in this world, If this world is no longer our home, if our citizenship is in fact in heaven, if we are simply aliens and strangers here, then it only makes sense that we would no longer give place to those fleshly lusts that characterize and consume the fallen humanity that is still of this world. We're not of this world any longer. Why give place to these things? Abstain from those things. You're not living here anymore. This world is not your home any longer. Put those things to death because you don't belong here. It makes sense. So how should we live in this world? We should abstain from fleshly lusts. But Peter doesn't stop there. And he goes on then in verse 12 to give a more positive exhortation regarding Christian living in a fallen world. And he says this. He says in verse 12, chapter 2, "...keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles." 
so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And he says here, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. I think he's using Gentiles there, similar to the way the Apostle Paul would. It's just a term kind of for lost humanity in general, uh, the Gentiles. Gentile, of course, technically means non-Jew. Uh, But in this case, I think he's just referring to lost humanity outside of Christ. Uh, And the Apostle Paul does something similar to that often in his letters. But anyway, um, the bottom line here, he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Keep your behavior excellent among the lost. It's not enough to simply abstain from the things that are bad. We also need to positively behave in such a way that a lost and watching world can observe our life and say that is excellent behavior. That's what he's saying here. We need to behave in such a way that a lost and watching world looks at us and says that person stands out. That person is not like other people that I know. Different. Peter says that we need to behave in such a way that even when the lost are compelled to slander us because of what we believe and teach, they are still forced to confess that our behavior is excellent, exemplary, and praiseworthy. Sometimes I hate what that Christian says. But I'll tell you what, I can't say anything bad about how they act. They're the real deal. I may not like what they say, but I can't argue with their behavior. They're real. That's the kind of thing he's going for here. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Behavior does matter. It's amazing, isn't it? He just flat out says it. Keep your behavior excellent. If your faith, if your religion, if your Christianity has not changed your behavior... It's worthless. Not because your behavior is what saves you, but because when God saves you, He changes your behavior. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you, As evildoers, they'll talk evil about you, but at the same time, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. There's still still force (laughs) to say. I may not like what they say, but I can't argue with their life, their behavior. Jesus says the same thing, doesn't he, in Matthew 5? And all throughout this section, Peter's borrowing liberally from the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's the same thing Peter says here, isn't it? Keep your behavior excellent so that they will glorify God in the day of visitation. It's the same thing. Let your light shine, Jesus said. Peter says, keep your behavior excellent. 
And here then is one of the major points that I want to get across tonight. Peter says that we are to keep our behavior excellent amidst a lost and watching world. But what specifically should we focus on? I mean, just saying keep your behavior excellent is kind of a broad statement, right? When it gets right down to it, what does that look like? What specifically does that look like? What should we be focusing on specifically if we want to keep our behavior excellent in the midst of this fallen world? And before, before we look at how Peter answers that question, I just want you to think briefly about how you would answer that question. I mean, imagine a fellow believer comes up to you and says, you know, I, if I really want to work at keeping my behavior excellent in the midst of this world, what should I focus on? You know, imagine somebody comes up to you and asks you that. What would you say? How would you answer them? Would you tell them to focus on being kind? Good. Would you tell them to focus on giving sacrificially? Would you tell them to focus on being quick to forgive or sharing the gospel or performing deeds of mercy? All of those things are good, right? All of those things are biblical. But that's not how Peter answers the question, is it? Peter says that if you want to keep your behavior excellent in the midst of the world, the big thing that you need to focus on is submission. Submission. Isn't that amazing? Notice this here in the first part of verse 13. Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, keep in mind that if you have a paragraph heading before verse 13, which a lot of you probably do, it may say something like honor authority or something like that. Remember, those paragraph headings were added later on. Those are not there in the original Greek. There's no break there. Verse 12 flows right into verse 13. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Submit yourselves. Follows right on from it. Keep your behavior excellent. Submit. You see, he's explaining, he's illustrating, he's elaborating on what it looks like, what it means to keep your behavior excellent. It means submission. That's what he's saying. In other words, Peter tells us that if we want to keep our behavior excellent in the world, if we want the lost around us to glorify God when they observe our lives, then the big thing that we need to focus on is being submissive. And I think that's amazing. And he's not just talking here about wives submitting to their husbands. That comes later. He does talk about that. And that's what everybody always thinks of, right? It's there. Chapter 3, we'll get to that. But he starts here in verse 13 of chapter 2 with the general principle that the life of the Christian, every Christian, should be characterized by submission. Everyone, young and old, male and female, 
slave, free. It makes no difference. As the chosen and holy people of God, as aliens and strangers in this world, we ought to be known for our submission. Our submission to every human institution, Peter says. It ought to stand out to those who observe our lives in the long haul. Submission. That's the general principle. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's how he starts this section here, this major section talking about submission. And then in the rest of chapter 2 and on into chapter 3, Peter takes that general principle of submission and then he illustrates what it looks like in several different real-life settings that we find ourselves in as Christians day to day. In chapter 2, 13 through 17, Peter explains what it looks like for the Christian to be submissive towards the government. That's a major setting or role that we find ourselves in, right? We are under a government. What does it look like to be submissive to that government? And then in chapter 2, 18 through 20, he explains the principle of submission in the context of a master-servant, or we might say employer-employee, relationship. A work setting. And then in 3, chapter 3, 1 through 7, he applies the principle of submission to the marriage setting. And then finally in chapter 3, 8 through 9, he kind of starts summing up his whole discussion of submission by basically describing what submission looks like in every other area of life that he had not yet addressed up to that point. So you see in verse 8, chapter 3, to sum up, because summing up his section on submission, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. This This is what submission looks like. It's what humbling yourself looks like in the context of pretty much any relationship. Just kind of summing things up here. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Now, in the interest of time tonight, we're not going to take the time to go through each of these different submission settings in detail. We just don't have time to do that. But I do want to make a few brief observations on these settings as a whole towards the government, towards employer, uh, in marriage, and so on. Just looking at this whole section here from chapter 2, verse 13, down to chapter 3, verse 9, just want to make a few observations that kind of stand out to me about this section in general as a whole. First of all, notice here that Peter basically covers every area of life that we find ourselves in as we live in this world. Doesn't he? I mean, he talks about our relationship to the government, which is a big one. Talks about our work setting, which is another huge one that we find ourselves in day to day. Talks about our family setting. I mean, you take those three things in, government, work, family, that about covers the vast majority of roles, you might say, that we find ourselves in, isn't it? And he puts all of these three, these big categories, government, family, 
I'm sorry, government, work, family. He puts all three of these under the umbrella of submission. All three of those are under the umbrella of submission. In other words, when we talk about the need to be submissive, we're not talking about some little accessory that hangs on the very periphery of our Christian life. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something that ought to be central to every setting, every relationship, every situation that we find ourselves in. What's the big thing in my relationship to the government? Submission. What's the big thing in my relationship to my employer? Submission. What's the big thing that goes into marriage and every other relationship that we're in? Submission. See, it's not peripheral. It's central. Central to everything. Central to these various relationships and roles that we're in on a day-to-day basis. Secondly, second observation here. Notice that Peter does not deal with any exceptions to submission in this passage. Right? He does not deal with any exceptions to submission in this passage. And we love the exceptions, don't we? I know I'm supposed to submit to the government, but... Right? I know I'm supposed to submit to my boss, but what if... I know wives are supposed to submit to their husbands, but you don't know how frustrating he can be. Now, are there exceptions to the general principle of submission? Yeah, I think there are. I think the Bible gives some. One example is in the book of Acts where... They're basically, remember, they're told not to preach Christ any longer by the authorities, and they disobey that. You've got to disobey that. You've got to obey God rather than man, right? There's one example right there. I think the Bible gives some exceptions. I think by extension, by application, you can maybe come up with a few other applications. But the point I want to make here is that Peter does not mention any exceptions in this passage. And I'm thankful that he doesn't because for the vast majority of us, we do not need to hear the exceptions. Do you hear me? For the vast majority of us, we do not need any exceptions. We need to hear that if we're going to keep our behavior excellent in the world, then we need to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Period. And if you hear that, and the first thing that pops into your mind is, yeah, but, then something's wrong. If you want to immediately start talking about the exceptions, whenever the topic of submission comes up, it probably means that you have a problem with being submissive. Give me the exceptions. What are the exceptions? Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Peter just says submit to every institution, period. If 
you're always looking for exceptions, that very attitude exposes a need in this area. You see that? That was the second observation. Thirdly, and even harder, I think, notice that Peter's exhortations on submission in these different settings, government, work, family, Notice that Peter's exhortations on submission in these different settings assume that we're going to be mistreated in these various settings. Right? Isn't this incredible? To say it another way, I'm going to word it a little bit differently, our obligation to be submissive doesn't end as soon as things get hard or as soon as we start being mistreated. Peter assumes we're going to be mistreated. He assumes things are going to be hard. And he tells us to be submissive anyway. Now again, I know you can go to town on this, but I'm just trying to be honest with what Peter says here. Right? Let's just be honest with the text first. Look at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority. Now, do you know which king Peter was referring to here? Does anybody know? Emperor Nero. Emperor Nero, Roman emperor, wicked, half insane, if not fully insane, Christian-hating Emperor Nero is who he's talking about here. Not talking about President Obama, people. He's talking about Nero. You see, it's one thing to submit to your ruler when he's nigh to a saint, It's another thing to submit to your ruler when he's kidnapping your family members, crucifying them, and then lighting them on fire to provide light in his garden, which is what Nero was doing to Christians. Yet, Peter says, submit yourselves to the king. Amazing. What about the work setting? Oh, Peter means that we only have to submit to our boss when he's fair and kind and treats us like we deserve to be treated, right? Really? Look down at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. My boss is so unreasonable. He's unfair. Peter says... Submit. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. You're being treated unjustly. You bear it. You bear up under it. Submit quietly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right, you're just doing what's right and yet you're suffering for it. 
if you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. That finds grace in the sight of God. In other words, Peter's talking here to people who are working for crooked bosses. That's that's who he's talking to. These guys are crooked. They're unfair. They're unjust. They don't treat their workers fairly. And he tells them to submit. It's amazing. And then in the context of marriage, Peter tells wives to be submissive to their husbands even when those husbands are disobedient to the word of God. Look in chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Again, notice the emphasis here on behavior over and over again. Your husband observes your behavior. It's not that you just have good intentions in your mind. He can't read your mind. He observes your behavior, wife. So when he's not loving you as Christ loved the church, when he's not nourishing and cherishing you, Peter says, submit to him. And seeing you submit when he knows he doesn't deserve it might be the very thing that wins his soul might be the very thing that breaks him. That's what Peter's saying. And of course, husbands aren't let off the hook either. If you go down to verse 7, you husbands in the same way, notice that in the same way phrase, in the same way as the wives, back in verse 1, he says, in the same way you husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. He's countering things that are very easy for men to do in a marriage, to be not understanding towards their wives with someone weaker. So when you find your wife alone and she's crying and she doesn't even know why she's crying, you don't just say, get over it. Since she is a woman, show her honor. Honor. Not because she deserves it. You show her honor all the time. Because you're commanded to. And then he goes on and makes it hard for all of us. Not returning, verse, verse 9, not returning evil for evil, insult for insult, giving a blessing instead. When someone's railing on you, right, insulting you, you get returned with a blessing instead. I mean, that's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Turn the other cheek, bless those who curse you, and so on. Again, beloved, in every one of these situations that Peter deals with here, he assumes that submission and that humbling ourselves is going to be very hard. And he assumes that we will be mistreated in the process. <laughs> he assumes that. It's a given. It's just a given. And yet, the exhortation remains. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Institution of government, institution of the work setting, institution of marriage, and so on. I mean, I don't know about you, but this this hurts me. I mean, this cuts me. 
I mean, you think about being at work, you know. It's like the first time something goes wrong, the first time you feel like your boss is unjust to you. It's like immediately you start looking for another job. I'm getting out of here. That's not right. You know, it's like it's, it's just there. It's like the immediate. It's the first response all the time. Well, lastly then tonight, I want us to consider how in the world we can possibly do this. How can we ever hope to learn submission in these different areas, especially when we're being treated wrongly by the ones we are called to submit to? How can we even do that? How is it even possible to do that? And the answer is that we learn to do so by following the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As in every area of Christian living, the answer is look to Christ and His example and follow Him. Notice in verse 21, and you'll probably notice by now that I've conveniently skipped over this section kind of up to this point, and there's a reason for that. But notice verse 21 through verses 21 through 25. Peter says, "For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges Righteously, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Don't you just love that passage there? It makes everything else better. <laughs> Notice how Peter puts the Lord Jesus Christ right at the center of this entire section on submission. Verse 21 begins with the word for, which of course links it with what had gone before, right? In other words, submit to your unjust government, submit to your crooked boss, for... You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. See the connection there? Submit, submit, for Christ did that. Not only that, notice how chapter 3 verse 1 begins with, In the same way, you wives. Well, In the same way as what? Well, again, those chapter divisions and section headings aren't inspired. They weren't there in the original. He's talking about in the same way as Jesus did back in the previous verses. So he talks about Jesus, 21 through 25, chapter 2, then he goes right on in chapter 3. In the same way as Jesus, wives, submit to your husbands. Again, chapter 3, verse 7, you husbands in the same way. In the same way as what? Well, in the same way as the wives back in chapter 1, 
which goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter, I'm sorry, verse 1, which goes back to the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 2. In the same way, in the same way, and it all goes back to Him. In that section there of chapter 2, 21 through 25. As I said, Jesus is at the center of this whole section on submission. It all centers around Him. We can submit to the government and to our employers, and we can submit to one another in marriage because we're following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially when it's hard and we're being mistreated. We can keep on submitting in the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ did. That's Peter's point. Was anyone in history more innocent than him? Has anyone in history suffered more than him? Yet what does Peter say? Verse 22 of chapter 2, "...who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." All throughout the crucifixion account, what do you see Jesus doing? Over and over and over again. Starting with His trial and ending with His resurrection, what is He doing time and time again? He's submitting. That's what He's doing. He's mocked and reviled, and He submits. He's whipped and beaten, And he submits. He's hung on the cross to absorb the wrath of God, and he submits. How could he do it? How could he do it? Well, verse 23 gives us the answer. Chapter 2, verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, and here's the key, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That is the secret to submission. Jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. His Father. That's how he could keep on submitting in the midst of unimaginable suffering and pain. But you don't know what I go through. You don't know how bad my boss is. You don't know how bad my husband is or my wife. You don't know how bad the government is that I live under. I don't. I know somebody who does. I know someone who suffered a lot worse. Have you ever had your back torn open by scourges? 
your hands and feet nailed through with spikes? Have you ever absorbed the wrath of God? He did. And yet he trusted. He submitted. He could do it because he trusted his Father. The same thing you're called to do. He trusted that the Father would judge righteously. He trusted that his Father would make everything right. And you know what? He did. He did. Philippians 2, being found, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, submission, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus trusted His Father because He knew that if He submitted to His Father's will and entrusted Himself completely to Him, His Father would vindicate Him and would make everything right. And His Father did that. And much more. (laughs) In the same way, beloved, we can submit even in the midst of very trying situations because we know we're doing it in obedience to our Father. And He will judge righteously. He will vindicate us. He will be your defender. Right? You don't have to defend yourself. Jesus didn't. He was reviled. He did not revile in return. His mouth was silent. God defended him. He'll do that for us. He will vindicate us. He will defend us. And he will make everything right. He will. When we struggle with submission, and we all, all do, When we struggle with submission, it's not ultimately because of the person we're trying to submit to. It's not. That's what we like to think. This person wasn't so mean, harsh, unjust, unkind. I could submit to them. But it's not ultimately about the person. Struggles with submission are struggles of faith. It's because we're not trusting God that submission is hard. We're not trusting that if we simply submit in obedience to God, then He will judge righteously on our behalf. That He will vindicate us. He will defend us. He will make everything right in the end. And on top of that, beloved, you better believe that when God sees you manifest that kind of trust in Him, He receives that as an act of worship. See, you need to view submission. You need to change the way you view it. It's not about submission as a thing in itself. It's an act of worship unto God. 
to submit in this way. Especially in difficult times, submission is about much more than just submission in itself. It's about worship. It's about trusting God even when it hurts, even when it's difficult. And that brings much honor and glory to Him. When you just simply trust Him and give it to Him, put it in His hands when it's difficult. It's about submitting as an act of worship unto Him who bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's about worshiping Him with our lives. Right? If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. See, submission is right in there. Self-denial, taking up your cross, following him. Again, Peter says, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. While being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And Peter's saying here, that's the exact same thing that we need to do when we find ourselves in difficult situations involving submission, whether it's towards the government, at work, at home, or whatever. Now, one last thing here. If you try to live like this in modern America, you know what people will say. They'll call you a doormat. Right? A spineless doormat. And I like the way one sister dealt with this in an article that I read a few months back. She said this, The wise older women, quote-unquote, the wise older women of our culture teach the younger women that meekness and humility make you a doormat. You know what? They do. You want to see the ultimate doormat? Look to Christ. Don't you love that? Yeah, you'll be a doormat. And so was Jesus. Don't, aren't you always saying you want to be like Jesus? He didn't open his mouth even when his life was on the line. He didn't defend himself when he was falsely accused. I open my mouth when my desire for a new set of curtains or a movie is on the line. Really? Christ found submission to his Father more important than life itself. I don't find it important enough to trust and obey for a movie. True Christianity doesn't grow cultural giants. It grows broken people forced to see that they are monsters. Suddenly the veil lifts. You see it. You see your pride for the black hole that it is. By grace alone, you hate your pride. Christ died to take that away in all humility and submission. How quick to to mercy and forgiveness you become when you have tasted your own sin. 
How quick to be long-suffering. You know your worth. You know each breath is undeserved. So wife, next time your husband asks you to do something that you don't want to do or you feel put upon or worse, afraid, remember Christ's great humility. He opened not his mouth to the point of death. He died for you. Your husband has nothing to do with this. Only Christ. He died for you. Don't swallow the lies of this world. You aren't worth it. You don't deserve it. You deserve death and judgment. You are worthy of the wrath of a righteous God. A word of warning, though. The world will hate you if you do this. It will hate you. It hates the idea of a wife shutting her mouth and in humility obeying her husband. It hates a husband actually leading his wife and children. Christ, though, obeyed his father to the point of death. What is the world to us? But be warned. If you follow this warrior, capital W, the Lord Jesus, if you follow this warrior into the very pits of hell, it will be your heart he destroys. You will follow a captain who won, not through might and battle, but by shutting his mouth and humbly obeying what his father commanded. His obedience cost him his life. He died. How can you expect to call yourself a Christian and not be called to the same fate? The world will not love you. It will think you are strange and possibly dangerous. It might try to take your children away from you. It will ridicule and mock you. It will call you weak. It will tell you that you're what's wrong with the world today. Close your mouth. Christ has broken your heart, and He will hold it, guard it, heal it, and bring you home. Quit trying to be accepted. Quit trying to make this world home. Give up this world. Trust yourself to Christ. Why? Because He rose again. Oh, that we could pray to just be made doormats in the kingdom.